Good morning. Oh, that was pretty good. All right, so this morning our um, scripture passage is Genesis chapter 50, starting in verse 15 through the end of the book. And if you do not have a Bible with you, you'll find a Bible in the pew in front of you. And uh, the reading today will be found starting on page, well, in its entirety, on page 44. So as is our custom, as you are able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 through 26. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Excuse me, and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Mekir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated as we go to the Lord in prayer. Morning, everyone. So we finally made it. We are here at the end of our series through the book of Genesis, and we're going to consider the passage that Greg read um, just a few minutes ago, Genesis 50, verses 15 to 26. A little bit of overlap with last week, just because 15 to 21 are just so rich, so we need to look at them a little bit more before we move on and then also catch those last several verses. Um, I think it's also really fitting, um, just in God's providence, that this passage is landing the Sunday before, the Sunday before Christmas. Um, So kind of in the midst of Advent season, um, I think Russell's already mentioned as we were singing those songs, that this time of Advent is a time to really press in and focus on the first coming of Christ 
and the significance of it. I mean, the incarnation, it's so easy for familiarity to, <clears throat> excuse me, to breed indifference. You know, we've heard the story, we've read it a hundred times, a thousand times, or whatever, and we're not moved by it. Um, rather than that happening, rather than being kind of anesthetized to the power of the incarnation, the first advent of Christ, let's pray and press in that we would be sensitized, that the weight and the glory would hit us that much harder because it is mind-blowing and amazing and will never plumb the depths of the glory of the incarnation and the first coming of Christ. Also, the Advent season, this preparation, we're waiting for the coming of Christ like those people were waiting for the Messiah. It's almost like training wheels for the waiting that we are called to do for the second advent. So we live before the second coming of Christ. And we, as followers of Jesus, we, we need to wait in hope. And we'll even see in this passage how central those themes are at the end of the book of Genesis. So I guess just an encouragement, but also this, heads, this leads us right into the, the um, passage here in Genesis 50. This Advent season, let's just milk it for all it's worth. Lord, please show me the glory of the incarnation. Help me to be just blown away with your wisdom and your goodness and your kindness and your, your love that is the first coming of Christ. And help me to learn how to wait for the second coming. Because we all live between the first and the second Advent. And how we live is massively important. And that's really where we'll end up this morning, the waiting that's um, one of the applications of our passage this morning. All right? So there's three points. The outline's in the bulletin. Um, it'll also be on the screens. Uh, God's will wins, first point. God will surely visit, second point. And then waiting. All right? So let's dive in. Um, let me say one more thing, actually. So this season of Advent is not just for people who have a family life like a Thomas Kincaid picture, you know, painting. You know, just all soft and perfect and, you know, the snow's falling. and No, not at all. The first coming of Christ is for all the mess and brokenness in our lives and all the longing and the aching. And... This time between the first and second advent is all about Jesus meeting us in the mess and the brokenness until he comes and sets it right. Okay, so first advent, second advent is for all of us, not just those of us for whom Christmas is warm and fuzzy. So, all right. Um, first point here, God's will wins. We're going to start and read verses 15 to 21. Um, really, this is, in a sense, kind of concluding reflections on um, the book here. And so I'll read through these verses, and then we'll, we'll consider um, particularly verses uh, 20 and 21. So when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, 
they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph. You see? So they sent the message because this was their thought. And that's why it's likely that they fabricated this, that they made this up. It's probably not something that Jacob actually said. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. You know, they sold him into slavery and treated their brother um, really in a cruel way. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And then Joseph broke into tears. He wept when they spoke to him. So we don't know for sure. Maybe Jacob actually did say this. And if so, that was probably painful for Joseph because why would his father doubt the sincerity of his forgiveness and his embrace of his brothers? And if Jacob hadn't said it, which is likely, again, the brothers are fabricating this for their own protection. But the issue is they still, after 17 years of him treating them well and caring for them, why are they still fearing him? Still thinking that he might be harboring a judge, calling all of his attitude and actions toward them into question. So you can see how deeply painful and saddening that would be either way. So there was a 4th century poet named Ephraim the Syrian, and he expanded on this to say, Joseph wept and said, Do not be afraid of me, for although your father has died, the God of your father, on account of whom I will never strike you, is still alive. Everybody catch that? I think it's a well stated in a, in a short um, form. Joseph wept and said, Do not be afraid of me, for although your father has died, the God of your father, on account of whom I will never strike you, is still alive. Verse 18, His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Oops, and then the poinsettia fell down before. Okay, sorry, I just kicked that in case you weren't looking accidentally. All right. Um, his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? So last week I mentioned how chapter 50 um, is kind of like a bookend for, obviously, um, it's the end of the book. But there are some ways in which there are themes that show up at the beginning of the book and the end of the book. Okay, So, one commentator, Hamilton, pointed out, Genesis begins by telling us about a primeval couple who tried to become like God. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil, if you eat from the fruit. Tree of knowledge of good and evil. Satan tempted them, and they ate. And Genesis ends by telling us about a man who denied he was in God's place. Joseph will only be God's instrument, never his substitute. So, God's people fell by trying to become like God, even though they were already made in God's image. And then Joseph, in his righteousness and faith, refuses 
to try to be in God's place, um, try to supplant his rightful place. So um, <clears throat> another quote here, Joseph's dreams do not show the outcome of the brother's submission, preserving the tension until this moment when Joseph fully and finally resists their offer of servitude. The dreams, therefore, depict the superiority of Joseph as Lord over the brothers, but not a picture of slaves. The people of Egypt had become enslaved to Joseph, but not his fathers and brothers. He refused to take advantage of their vulnerability. So, so there was the dream back in chapter 37 of the brothers bowing down, but the dream doesn't indicate that they're going to become slaves, right? It's kind of left open-ended. What does this mean? And so even though this dream, this prophecy was fulfilled, the brothers did bow down. Joseph, again, in his godly, you know, righteous disposition toward them, forgiving them and treating them well, rather than taking advantage of them and, you know, their vulnerability and enslaving them, he had no desire to do that. He wanted to bless them. You see that? Isn't that incredible? We, we would think as we're going along, oh, he's going he's gonna to give it to them. You know, they're going to get their just desserts. No, he could have enslaved them, and he refused to because that's not what he wanted. Retaliation would fly in the face of God's intentions for all these providential twists and turns. Joseph had learned that God was in control. He was working good out of their evil. And so for him to retaliate would be to undercut God's purposes, to try to be in God's place, to try to take revenge, and he knew that that wasn't his place, and he had embraced that. So verse 20, he says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. His family was kept alive through the famine. All these Egyptians were kept alive through the famine because of Joseph. So again, more bookends. So Adam and Eve falling for the temptation to be like God, Joseph's refusal to be like God. And then, you know, is there this intentional contrast? The wording of the serpent, remember in chapter 3, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And then Joseph, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. So there's this overturning, this redemption of what was lost at the fall. And I mentioned last week how um, Joseph is almost like the anti-Cain. So another bookend. Cain kills his brother. Joseph could have killed his brothers, but instead he keeps them alive and blesses them and protects them and provides for them. So verse 21, so do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So point number one here, God's will wins, ultimately. God meant it for good, even though the brothers meant it for evil against Joseph. So humans can intend, can mean things for evil, for harm, but God, at the same time, can intend those things for good. Satan and demons can will things for evil, for harm. God intends them for good. He can use Satan like a tool. So the devil, 
And oftentimes, people, human, humans, can use good things for bad purposes. The devil doesn't use bad things for good. He uses good things for bad. And God does the opposite. God wills all things, including evil and harm, for good. And God can also overcome all potential obstacles to the fulfillment of his promises. We've seen this throughout the whole book. Again, we kind of zoom out here. And he had made these covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob of blessing and offspring and land. And as we've walked through the book, we've seen all these potential obstacles, all these threats to the promises being fulfilled. Fratricide, you know, killing the seed of the woman, right? So Cain killing Abel. The flood. How in the world, if, if God wipes everybody out, how are these promises going to be fulfilled? Babel. Abram taking matters into his own hands and going down to Egypt and, you know, like lying about his wife and she ends up in Pharaoh's harem. How are these promises going to be fulfilled? The barrenness of Abram and Sarai. Jacob's trickery. Esau's murderous rage. Like all these threats. Famine. But God can work his will and bring his promises to bear, can fulfill them all despite all those threats. God's will wins. God's will wins. So fast forward to the New Testament, Paul with a thorn in the flesh. What was this satanic messenger, 2 Corinthians 12, you know, Paul had this thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. What's the purpose? Satan's purpose was to tear Paul down, right? To destroy his faith, to so afflict him that he would just want to scrap it. But God's intention was to keep Paul humble so that he would be humble and recognize his need for God's strength and so that in his weakness, he would actually be strong in God's strength. So Satan intended for evil. God intends it for good. And again, Satan is like a tool in God's hand to accomplish his purpose. Same thing in the book of Job. So another story of God working evil for good, God intending good in the midst of horrific evil. Um, probably anybody in here older than me is very familiar with a picture that's been called the napalm girl. Anybody know what we're talking about? It's this little girl who's running naked, and there's a napalm cloud behind her. Okay, so do you know the story of this woman? Well, let me read it to you in her words here. Um, pretty beautiful picture of what human beings intended for evil, God meant for good. So she writes, you've seen my picture. It's a picture that made the world gasp, a picture that defined my life. I am nine years old, running along a puddled roadway in front of an expressionless soldier, arms outstretched, naked, shrieking in pain and fear, the dark contour of a napalm cloud billowing in the distance. Those bombs have brought me immeasurable pain. Even now, some 40 years later, I am still receiving treatment for burns that cover my arms, back, and neck. The emotional and spiritual pain was even harder to endure. And yet, 
Looking back at the past five decades, I realize that those same bombs that brought so much suffering also brought great healing. Those bombs led me to Christ. As a child, I was raised in the religion of cow dye. It recognizes all religions as having one same divine origin, which is God or Allah or the Tao or nothingness or pretty much any other deity you could imagine. Looking back, I see my family's religion as something of a charm bracelet slung around my wrist, each dangling bauble representing yet another possibility of divine assistance. When troubles came along, and every day it seemed they did, I was encouraged to rub those charms in hopes that help would arrive. For years, I prayed to the gods of Cal Dai for healing and peace, but as one prayer after another went unanswered, it came, became clear that either they were non-existent or they did not care to lend a hand. And so I continued to bear the crippling weight of anger, bitterness, and resentment toward those who caused my suffering, the searing fire that penetrated my body, the ensuing burn baths, the dry and itchy skin, the, ina the inability to sweat, which turned my flesh into an oven in Vietnam's sweltering heat. I craved relief that never would come, and yet, despite every last external circumstance that threatened to overtake me, mind, body, and soul, the most agonizing pain I suffered during that season of life dwelled in my heart. I was alone, atop a mountain of rage. Why was I made to wear these awful scars? In 1982, I found myself crouched inside Saigon Central Library, pulling Vietnamese books of religion off the shelves one by one. The stack in front of me included books on Baha'i, Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, and Cao Dai. It also contained a copy of the New Testament. I thumbed through several books before pulling the New Testament into my lap. An hour later, I had picked my way through the Gospels, and at least two themes had become abundantly clear. First, despite all that I had learned through Cao Dai, that there were many gods, that there were many paths to holiness, that the burden of success in religion rested atop my own weary, slumped shoulders, Jesus presented himself as the way, the truth, and the life. His entire ministry, it seemed, pointed to one straightforward claim. I am the way you get to God. There is no other way but me. Second, this Jesus had suffered in defense of his claim. He had been mocked, tortured, and killed. Why would he endure these things, I wondered, if he were not, in fact, God? I had never been exposed to this side of Jesus, the wounded one, the one who bore scars. I turned over this new information in my mind as a gem in my hand, relishing the light that was cast from all sides. Perhaps he could help me make sense of my pain and at last come to terms with my scars. My salvation experience happened, fittingly enough, on Christmas Eve. It was 1982, and I was attending a special worship service at a small church in Saigon. The pastor spoke about how Christmas is not about the gifts we give to each other, so much as it is about one gift in particular, the gift of Jesus Christ. As I listened to this message, I knew that something was shifting inside me. So when the pastor finished speaking, I stood up, stepped out into the aisle, and made my way to the front of the sanctuary to say yes to Jesus Christ. There, in a small church in Vietnam, mere miles from the street where my journey had begun amid the chaos of war, on the night before the world would celebrate the birth of the Messiah. When I woke up that Christmas morning, I experienced the kind of healing that can only come from God. 
I was finally at peace. Nearly half a century has passed since I found myself running, frightened, naked, and in pain down that road in Vietnam. I will never forget the horrors of that day, the bombs, the fire, the shrieks, the fear. Nor will I forget the years of trial and torment that followed. But when I think about how far I have come, the freedom and peace that comes from faith in Jesus, I realize there is nothing greater or more powerful than the love of our blessed Savior. My faith in Jesus has enabled me to forgive those who have hurt and scarred me. It has enabled me to pray for my enemies rather than curse them. And it has enabled me not just to tolerate them, but truly to love them. I will forever bear the scars of that day. And that picture will always serve as a reminder of the unspeakable evil of which humanity is capable. That picture defined my life. In the end, it gave me a mission, a ministry, a cause. Today, I thank God for that picture. Today, I thank God for everything, even for that road, especially for that road. Like, G like Joseph, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about life. So you can read more about her story. Her name is Kim Fuk Phan Thi, and she's the author of Fire Road, The Napalm Girl's Journey Through the Horrors of War to Faith, Forgiveness, and Peace. So have you ever pressed the question all the way back? So you can imagine if you're her, God, why would you allow that to happen? Or if you're Joseph, why? Why am I suffering like this? Why am I thrown in prison for standing for righteousness and fleeing, you know, these overtures by Potiphar's wife? Why am I suffering like this? Why all this evil? If you really get down to the bedrock of it, we ask, why did you allow, intend, ordain a fall? You know the cross wasn't plan B. Have you ever wrestled with that, like, deepest question? Why did God let evil in in the first place? Why did he even intend a world where this would happen? Because again, the cross isn't plan B. So there's a song by Eric, Peter, Eric Peterson. I knew a guy named Eric Peterson. Um, Andrew Peterson, sorry, entitled, Don't You Want to Thank Someone? And I'd encourage you to listen to the whole thing this afternoon. But just listen to a few of the lyrics. He says, Can't you feel it in your bones? Something isn't right here. Something that you've always known but you don't know why. And then, later on in the song, just behind a veil of wind, a million angels waiting in the wings, a swirling storm of cherubim making ready for the reckoning. Oh, how long, how long. Oh, sing on, sing on. And then he says this, and when the world is new again, and the children of the king are ancient in their youth again. Maybe it's a better thing, a better thing, to be more than merely innocent, but to be broken than redeemed by love.
Would it have been better to never have any villain? Never have any sin? Never have any evil in this world? I think sometimes we put God on trial and say, if I were God. Well, one writer named Matthew Sear, he agrees with these lyrics in this song, and he says, with trembling, I think I agree that it's better to be broken and then redeemed by love. With trembling, I think I agree, despite the cost to us and to him, meaning to Jesus. I'm not discounting how hard it's been for you or for me sometimes. The consequences of feeding ourselves on something beside God are so real and intense all around us. Dare we tell the grief ravaged that it will be worth it in the end, that there can be anything to come that will balance the scales? He says, I think we must dare because there are still more echoes and gleams of something in the distance, something we are coming to. The Lord who bled and wept will not make light of our sufferings, but will make light of them. He will turn the darkness into light. I think we must dare believe that when evil and pain at last are slain, the revealed beauty and goodness of the Lord will make us glad even of our sufferings, glad that his love and power have been shown forth through them. Then we will have grown to be the kind of children capable of loving him with such abandon that even our most heart-rending experiences in the Shadowlands will be significant in that they display his glory to glorify God and enjoy him forever to degrees we can't now comprehend. That is the end he was shaping for us when he laid out a garden with serpent-sized gaps in the hedge. To remember the hellishness from which we were rescued and yet bask in God's love, to have once marched with the rebel forces and now be cherished sons and daughters, these are the things that the angels can never know, but long to look into. As the great story unfolds, they will only be able to marvel in deepening astonishment and praise as we, God's later children, grow ever closer to him in love, our capacity for joy in him ever increasing, and his likeness shining out from us ever more clearly. Could we really know how wide and long and high and deep his love is if he never had to show us any mercy? I know this raises all kinds of questions, right? Like, wait, did God, is it? There's certain questions the Bible just doesn't answer, but the best stories have the greatest rescues. They're the ones that are filled with the greatest glory. Right? And if we're really going to know the full range of his incredible mercy and love, the only way it could happen is if there was evil in this world. So Joseph wasn't pondering this from an, a comfortable ivory tower. He suffered, and he said, it's all worth it. God, in, you intended this for evil. God intended it for good. And so would 
this woman, the napalm girl, and so many others throughout history. So God's will ultimately wins, and his will is good, and it will ultimately all work for good. He will not abandon us. He will never leave us or forsake us, which leads us to point number two, God will surely visit. So look at verses 22 to 26. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, which um, was the ideal lifespan in Egypt, okay? So obviously he's blessed by God, and you see 110 years is repeated twice, um, or it's repeated in verse 26, spoken twice. So Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own, kind of like Jacob had done with Joseph's first two boys, Ephraim and Manasseh, in chapter 48. He adopted them as his own. Um, Same thing going on here. And Joseph said to his brothers— Probably some of them have died by now, but those that are still alive. I'm about to die, but God will visit you, very important word, and bring you up out of this land, speaking of the Exodus, to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, the promised land. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, promise, like take an oath, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So, the word visit is repeated. It's a really important word. Um, It's used a ton of times in the Bible. usually has connotations of attending to something or someone, observing with intent to act, or coming to the comfort or aid of someone And when it's used of God, it means divine intervention where judgment's carried out on the enemies and deliverance for God's people. Okay, so when God visits, he intervenes. He shows up and destinies start to change. Okay, so for instance, Genesis 21, 1, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And a barren woman is pregnant. He intervenes, right? And this destiny-shaping blessing happens. Or Exodus 4.31, the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. In other words, we're suffering. They cry out, God is going to intervene, and he's going to redeem us, and he's going to judge the Egyptians. So the visitation of God is the intervention of God to save his people and judge his enemies. And so when he visits, he brings blessing and curse, redemption and judgment. So abundantly clear at the Exodus. It's also abundantly clear at the Incarnation. Okay, so Genesis just fits so seamlessly into the big storyline of the Bible Do you know where there's a key um, use of this term visitation in Luke 1.68? Okay, so Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesies and says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn 
It's a symbol of strength, of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. So his son, John the Baptist, is going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. And so the Messiah is coming to deliver his people. The ultimate visitation from the Lord has come. Emmanuel, God with us, visiting in the flesh. So the visitation of God is the intervention by God to save his people and judge his enemies. That's what happened on the cross. But instead of God's enemies, all of us sinners, being judged, where did the judgment fall? Anybody? It fell on Jesus. So he didn't come the first time to judge the world. He came to save. And so the judgment had to fall on the Son so that we, the enemies, could be redeemed. The penalty that we all deserve for our sin fell on Jesus so that we could be set free. So if you are still burdened down with the guilt of your sin, you can be freed from that burden. You can be totally forgiven and cleansed of that burden and set free by trusting in Jesus. He died in your place to rescue you. So first advent, the visitation, the intervention of God to judge and deliver, the judgment fell on him so that we could get the deliverance. That's the good news of the gospel. The visitation, I'm sorry, um, so you can also see how we await yet one more visitation, the ultimate visitation at the end. Revelation 22:20. 20, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Another visitation. And the church says, amen, come Lord Jesus. Visit your people, deliver final full deliverance. Judge the enemy, set the world to rights, restore all things, make all things new. So just as Joseph awaited the exodus, he knew God was going to deliver them. He knew that God had promised the promised land. So he says, hey, when God actually does this, take my bones, because I know the future of God's people is in the promised land, not in Egypt. It was by faith that he did that, that he made them promise to fulfill that vow. So just as Joseph awaited the exodus and gave instructions concerning his bones, just as the Israelites cried out to, to God and awaited the exodus from slavery in Egypt, just as the Israelites cried out to God when they were in exile and awaited that visitation, that deliverance to return to the land out of Babylon, slavery in Babylon, just as the Israelites waited for the Messiah, you know, those silent years between Malachi and Matthew, we now await the second visitation of the Son of God, the second advent, when we, his people, will be fully and finally delivered from this broken world and these broken bodies into the promised land, the new heavens, the new earth, with new, resurrected, glorified bodies, our eternal home, eternal freedom of the children of God in the new heavens and the new earth. So, it's interesting. You see how these patterns just repeat and repeat and they grow. They get bigger until the ultimate redemption, right? So last point, 
the waiting. The book of Genesis ends with Joseph, by faith, commanding his brothers that his bones need to make it to the promised land when the people of Israel are redeemed out of slavery. So, as we think about this theme of waiting, because we are between the first and second advent, let's go back to the, the previous two points, okay? So we wait for God's will to win. It doesn't just always happen like that, right? I mean, think about the circuitous path that Joseph went through. All kinds of suffering before the promises were fulfilled. So they will be fulfilled. God's will will win, but we must wait for it. Joseph had to in prison. And even now, at the end of Genesis, Joseph dies and waits, quote-unquote, in a coffin for the fulfillment of God's promises because the future of the people of God is in the promised land. But he's not going to have waited in vain because God's will will win. So we also wait for God to visit us, to show up and judge and deliver like the Israelites did, 400 years in slavery in Egypt. Like they waited hundreds of years, that silent period before John the Baptist is born, and then Jesus. And even now, we wait for Jesus to return and set the world to rights and make all things new. So this Exodus theme gets repeated and recycled throughout the Bible. God visited his people in Egypt to bring them out and bring them in. Think about it this way. He brought them out circumstantially. They were circumstantially delivered from slavery, but their hearts were still enslaved. They grumbled, right? So that exodus wasn't the best full final one, right? And then Jesus dies in our place and we can be redeemed from slavery to sin so we are spiritually redeemed, but are we circumstantially redeemed? Like, do all Christians just kind of like have it easy and float on into heaven? No, it's actually the opposite. We are spiritually redeemed, but not circumstantially. So can't, like, don't we wait in hope for the day when both circumstantial and spiritual combine and it's full deliverance, full redemption, no more brokenness, slavery, nothing. No more battle against sin. So these themes get repeated and they grow and build. And so just as Joseph had to wait by faith, we have to wait by faith. But just as God visited Joseph in slavery, in the pit, just as God visited the Israelites in slavery under Pharaoh in Egypt, just as God visited in a little stable in Bethlehem, he's going to visit again. So Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. I will come again and bring you to be with me where I am. So every past deliverance can serve our hope in the present that it's coming. Wait for it. 
We don't have to throw up our hands or wonder if God has forgotten about us. We are waiting and we can wait confidently in hope. 2 Peter 3.8, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. According to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Flip over to Hebrews chapter 11 and see how Joseph waited and see how it is an example for us to follow. Hebrews eleven twenty two. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Okay? So, faith is the assurance of things not seen. Okay, so he couldn't see the promised land. He couldn't see this exodus. It was happening hundreds of years later, but he trusted God's word. And so he, by faith, gave instructions concerning his bones. So the point is, Joseph planted his life in a narrative arc that was bigger than his own little life. See, sometimes I think we can just focus on our lives and just think, God, what are you doing? What are you doing? Like, have you forgotten about me? Why all this suffering? Why all this evil? But if we step back, God's purposes will always be fulfilled. God's will will win. Wait for it. We can trust him. So do you know that Joseph is still waiting? Look at the end of Hebrews 11. All these, though commended through their faith, <clears throat> did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Joseph is still waiting for the fullness of these promises to be fulfilled, just like Barry's bones in Georgetown, in that cemetery. They're waiting for the resurrection. So is he free from suffering? Is he at home with the Lord? Absolutely. But he doesn't have his new body yet. You better believe he's still anxiously waiting for, for the last Christian to cross the finish line and then Jesus comes back and sets everything to rights and makes everything new and the resurrection and glorified bodies and all things new. So Barry's waiting, Joseph is waiting, and we are waiting now and then when we die. Which is why the Bible ends with waiting. The end of Genesis, waiting in a coffin, for God's promises to be fulfilled. Revelation 22, waiting. The Lord Jesus promising, surely I'm coming soon, and his church, his people, by faith, reply, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So listen, Genesis 50 is testimony that we can have, in the words of Tim Keller, a powerful confidence that God is handling our lives well, that our bad things will turn out for good, 
Our good things cannot be taken from us, and the best things are yet to come. Genesis 50 and the rest of the Bible is testimony that we can have a powerful confidence that God is handling our lives well, that our bad things will turn out for good, our good things cannot be taken from us, and the best things are yet to come. Wait for it, church. Let's pray. God, we are not good at waiting. And we also are so prone to be short-sighted in our view. And we want things now. And I pray that you would bolster our confidence in your faithfulness and goodness to accomplish every single one of your promises, even if the fulfillment of them takes place way after each and every one of us in this room dies. Help us, Lord, to live by faith in you, the faithful covenant God, our faithful Savior who visited us first not to judge and condemn us, but to be condemned for us so that we could be delivered and we could have all of this great living hope. Help us to walk by faith and not by sight. Being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Help us also like this great cloud of witnesses. Throw off everything that weighs us down and entangles us and help us to run with endurance the race that's set before us with our eyes fixed on Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.